Well, we began last week a series of reflections together on what it really means to serve needs in the way that Jesus does, right? Uh, we began to think together about the differences between the way the world sometimes thinks about servanthood and the way Jesus really uh, teaches us servanthood is meant to be. And if you didn't get all the distinctions that I laid out last week and that are up there on the screens for you, you'll find uh, copies of that message at our literature stations. You can get them online. You can get them through our church app. Uh, But I think it's really important to think about the very different way that Jesus calls us to come at servanthood as compared to those ways we sometimes, I know I do, sometimes slip into coming at service. Today, I guess I want to go back, in, in a sense, uh, to, to an even more preliminary or primary or um, foundational way of thinking about uh, servant. I want to think with you about the kind of heart that we need to have in order to practice servanthood uh, the way Jesus does, uh, in order to be more like uh, the one that, uh, the kind of serving we see in that left column versus uh, uh, that, that other column. Uh, We're we're going to consider together what the Bible teaches about this through that passage I mentioned from John chapter 1 and then Philippians chapter 2. But the very big idea I hope you'll take in, this is the sort of crucial idea here, is that the habit of truly Christ-like service, rather than just going through the motions, it flows only from a humble heart. I mean, there is no servanthood like Jesus is talking about without their first being in us a truly humble heart. Uh, One of the most servant-hearted people I know is my stepmother, Patty Ann. Um, Patty Ann walked into the Meyer family as a 26-year-old. She was my dad's uh, second wife. And, And pity the poor woman walk into my family. Because we are about as proud, cocksure, and arrogant a group of, of people as God ever made, uh, the Meyer family. And, uh, and Patty Ann came in and brought this amazing servant-hearted humility about her that was really, that continues to be one of the most beautiful kind of salt and light elements in, in, our, in our family. She's just somebody just incredibly real. And, and it's amazing that Patty Ann had that particular, uh, has that particular heart about her because she um, is an extraordinarily gifted, talented person. She was a, a championship swimmer as a little girl in, um, in Florida. I mean, she was at the state championship level. She, like, never lost a race. And she's in the state finals, and, she, and at age uh, 10 and a half or so, and she loses like for the first time. And she comes home crying and she says, I'm never swimming anymore. I'm never swimming anymore, Dad. And her father's this very prominent surgeon in in St. Petersburg, and he says, oh, honey, get back in the water. No, no, she said, and she had brought home this wooden tennis racket. I'm going to play tennis instead. And he rolled his eyes and thought, okay, well, I'll let her play tennis and she'll find out how hard that is and she'll be back in the water in no time. 18 months later, Patty Ann wins the U.S. 12 and under championships. (laughs) She goes on to win eight national titles. She becomes one of the top 20 women's tennis professionals on planet 
earth, right? She becomes just a phenom of staggering uh, capacity. Um, and, and today she's my dad's permanent doubles partner, much to his chagrin. Uh, she, and he's a good tennis player. She's obviously a whole lot better. And uh, she is a fabulous teaching pro. And part of the reason why she's such, the, such an amazing teaching pro is it's, it's really never about her. It's always about bringing out the best in, in the people she teaches. And she teaches uh, high school kids now. She coaches a high school tennis team. And the kids there are just constantly giving her gifts. These are high school boys that are giving her these gifts because they just love the way she's so good at bringing out the best in them. Patty Ann would tell you, if she was standing here today, that if you want to improve your serve on the tennis court, you need a very flexible body. Uh, she, she would hammer that home to you in all kinds of ways and give you exercises to build that. She says, all of the power, and I'm a lefty, so forgive me on this, all of the power in your serve, okay, comes from this ability to bend your knees properly and arc your back and cock your, your arm and then just follow through in this really fluid, flexible, flowing kind of motion. All the power comes from that flexibility. I want to suggest to you today that the same can be said of serving on the other courts of our lives. Um, if you want to improve your serve in, in the sense of serving needs, then, then you need to have a humbly flexible heart. You need to have a willingness to flex, to change, to adapt, to, 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 to move in, in, a, in a much less rigid way than is sometimes uh, the way we harden into over the course of life. We need to be able to have a heart that is willing to bend and to arc and to flex and to reach and to follow through the way Jesus himself did. And that's what I really want to invite you to think about with me today. Before there were vast black holes sucking interstellar matter into the abyss of their infinite space, before there was stardust, and subatomic particles forming matter and energy itself, before there was light or darkness, before there was time or space, before breath or belief, there was only God. Only God. In the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, this God was and is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions. He is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, uh, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, infinite, infallible, independent, not standing in need of any creatures, but only manifesting his own glory. And although it remains an absolutely impenetrable mystery to the human mind, the Bible teaches 
that God existed and indeed still exists as three persons of one substance, one power, and one eternity. The church has called this God, God the creator, God the word, God the spirit. God the father, God the son, God the spirit. And it is probably impossible for us in this life to fully understand who he is, to to understand what it's like to be him. Uh, We are like uh, ants trying to contemplate uh, quantum physics when it comes to contemplating the immensity of any God that could create just the universe our telescopes can now see. Our lives together here in this space we call life and earth are marked by so much conflict and so much regular confusion and restlessness that we can hardly even begin to conceive the absolute communion and contentment and joy within the life of the Trinity, within the life of God himself. Suffice it to say that if we were to be able to taste it, even for a nanosecond, if we were to be able, even for the most infinitely small part of time, to taste anything of what it means to be God, it would be the most rapturous reality we had ever known. It would just just blow all of our circuits. Think of chills of ecstasy running up and down the length of your body for all of eternity. Imagine all wisdom and beauty and love suddenly and simultaneously filling up your being, becoming your being in wave after wave of circuit sweeping shudders. Now realize that if you were to experience that, For 10,000 years, you still would not know a billionth of the glory of actually being God for an instant. Absolute communion. Complete contentment. Endless, rapturous joy. This is something of the majesty and the mystery that the Apostle John is trying to communicate when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I think it is only when we begin to touch the hem of that glory, and I hope I've given you just a little touch of that hem in the dialogue so far. It's only when we just touch it that we can begin to understand the magnificence of the serving heart of God. Because you see, what what follows next in the story is more amazing still, I think. Eugene Peterson famously translates John's account of the incarnation as follows. And the word became flesh, John 1.14, and blood, and moved 
into our neighborhood. Now, I, I don't know for sure about your neighborhood, but, but mine, as lovely as it is, is not one of absolute communion and complete contentment and endless rapturous joy. And, and the reason is, as I've shared with you on other occasions, the problem is the neighbors. <laughs> right? It is the neighbors. There's the lady whose driveway I have shoveled out I do not know how many times and has never, ever said thank you. Uh, there is the man whose politics runs very contrary to mine, and he wants to talk about it all the time. There's the woman who's wrapped up in her problems, so wrapped up that in any conversation, there's never a question about how you're doing. It's always about her. There's the teenager with the purple hair. There's the kid that nearly runs me down on the sidewalk with his bicycle. There's the guy who never seems to pick up his newspapers. You know, does he not get what this does to property values around here? And runs the snowblower at 5 o'clock in the morning. And for every story I could tell you about the neighbors, there's another one they could tell you about me because I'm the guy that leaves the newspapers out and runs the snowblower early in the morning. <laughs> it's quite a neighborhood. I don't usually critique myself as, as to my neighborliness. I mean, that's the reality. I don't usually do a lot of that. Most of the time, I am focused on wishing how the other neighbors would behave differently than they seem to. I hold on firmly to my particular way of living. I cling tight to um, the course I'm walking on the sidewalk, uh, literally and figuratively, I hug hard to my schedule, I hold fast to my opinions, I cleave to the people who are mostly like me, and when I am criticized, I tend to clutch my ego, and, and when I'm given a chance to take credit, I often reach out and grab it, uh, and when faced with somebody else's need, I frequently grip my own resources all the tighter, and I do these things because all of these things are sacred to me. They're holy to me. They give me the measure of stability and security that I feel like I need in this unpredictable world. They're what keep me feeling a little bit superior to some other people, a little bit more in control, a little bit more godlike in a sense. And when I do manage to fence off a little bit of heaven for myself, uh, my backyard, you know, my space in my car, uh, the, the arrangement of my office, uh, my study at home, when I fence off a little bit of, of this heaven, when I have the kind of companions that I really feel most comfortable with, the sort of environment that I, I like, I resist leaving that neighborhood, okay? I just do. I mean, sometimes I go, but I just resist it, you know? Um, when I feel like I'm in a great neighborhood. I am feeling sorry right now for Eric Heron about to move from Pasadena. I, I was there yesterday. It was 75 degrees there right now, and he's moving here. I, what's that? Preach it. Yeah, preach it. But God is not so much like me. 
Uh, boy, that is a statement. He, he is not like me. Um, the Lord in whose presence all of us are gathered here today does not hold on so tight, okay, to a lot of things. He just doesn't. Philippians 2, and I encourage you to open up your Bibles and maybe follow along with me, uh, says that though he, very much unlike me or, or perhaps you, was in very nature God, I mean, he doesn't just think he's God. Like sometimes my enemy says, boy, you think you're God or something. Uh, he, he is, he's not applying for the job. He has it. He is God. Though he was in very nature God, the one to whose standards, the one to whose way of life, everybody ought to rightly seek to live up. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, writes Paul. He didn't hold on to it, though it was his, and it belonged utterly and rightly to him. He did not hold it with this white knuckle grip. Instead, he was higher than the highest high. And greater than our concept of great. Uh, he stooped down, and I mean all the way down. Compared to who he really was and is, where he had come from, he made himself nothing, says the Apostle Paul. Uh, he made himself nothing compared to who he is. He took off the robes of his divine majesty. He bent down and put on, and I quote, the very nature of a servant, the Bible says. He put on the very nature of the opposite of what was his rightful estate. And he made himself born to a peasant girl and an ordinary tradesman in the armpit of the ancient world. And it was not an accident. He chose to go right there, that way. He stooped to share the life of the least of all of humanity. And Paul writes, being found in appearance as a man, he bowed even lower still. He before whom the purest angels shielded their gaze because of his far greater holiness and beauty. He humbled himself, the Bible says. He humbled himself. He bent to embrace, to embrace lepers with separating sores. He knelt down beside a, a guilty adulteress about to be executed for her crime. He got literally down in the dust and the dirt with her on the ground and said, I am for you, and life can become new for you. He stooped down to touch beggars and the blind and the lame, and he said, I love you, and I will help you. He stooped to wash the stinking feet of fishermen and to pray for the souls of those who not only hated him, but hurt him and enjoyed hurting him. He bent down to them too. And then he, before whose commands entire worlds and wind and waves moved in instant submission, 
he stooped further yet, and I quote Philippians 2, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He bent all the way to the bottom so that by the disfiguring of his body and the shedding of his blood, we might be straightened out before God and we might be washed clean of our sin and we might be one day lifted up to the place from which he had come. As the Nicene Creed puts it, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, flexed in every sense and came all the way down. But I struggle to imagine how I could make time in my very important schedule to volunteer my time to serve needs. I struggle to wonder how I could ever fit in a mission trip or do that extra task that I'm now being asked to do at home or at work. I debate inside of myself whether to bend down from my lofty place and truly listen to somebody I find kind of beneath me a bit boring or leave the safe circle of my friendships in order to reach out to some stranger. I struggle to discern how I could possibly ever release my grasp on some of the comforts of my material heaven in order to invest more in the work of the kingdom. I wonder how I could ever descend from my righteous perch to forgive that miserable sinner's offense or stoop to serve alongside that person whose party or preferences seem so whole, unholy and obnoxious to me. This is how I move through my days too often. And then I sometimes catch this glimpse of Jesus. And I know I need a new heart. And I start to pray that God will take my heart of stone and give me a heart like his, one that is humble enough to flex in order to serve. How about you? How does it go for you out in the courts of life? these days. Dr. Richard Seltzer tells of a moment when he too was moved. And the famous surgeon records this tale in his book, Mortal Lessons, and I just want to close with his account. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed, and she will be thus from now on. 
The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve, said Seltzer. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks me. Yes, I say. It will be. And she nods and is silent. Her young husband is in the room, and the man smiles. And he looks at his wife's face with a love so generous that the heart of the surgeon is stunned into silence. All at once, I know who he is, writes Seltzer. I understand, and I lower my gaze, because one is not bold in an encounter with the holy. The bridegroom, writes Seltzer, bends now to kiss his beloved's crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers. Do you understand that this is what he has done? again and again on every level. Do you, do you feel it in your heart that once upon a time God stooped to shape humanity from the dust, the one who breathed life into it. Do you see how he bent down once again. And this time, it was himself that he reshaped. This time, it was himself who became dust to kiss a disfigured earth with his grace and to breathe new life into this troubled but beloved race. Christ showed us that it is not just the staggering height of his holiness that constitutes God's grandeur. It is the stunning depth of his humility, his willingness to flex and bend in service, which truly displays his glory. We saw the glory with our own eyes, said the Apostle John about this wonder. You wonder why? They went out into the world willing to lay down their lives to do anything necessary to meet the needs of people. You wonder why? It is because we saw the glory with our own eyes. 
We saw the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. And I hope that in some small way this morning you have caught a glimpse of it yourself. And that it will have touched your heart and made it more willing to flex and to arc and to reach and to follow through as you improve your serve. Let's pray together. And now, gracious God, marveling before the wonder of who you are and what you do, help us to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.